This is the Africa service of Vatican Radio. Welcome to our half-hour daily program for Africa. Stay tuned for our bulletin of church news, which will be followed by a panorama, and then our feature development and the economy. We shall close with a reflection on this coming Sunday's Gospel passage. I am John Baptist Tomosime. Pope Francis and members of the Kuria continued with their week-long spiritual exercises on Friday. The preacher of the papal household, Cardinal Daniel Cantalamessa, who is guiding the spiritual exercises, delivered his first Lenten sermon for this year with a focus on the theme, I am the bread of life, taken from the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verses 30 to 35, in which Jesus explains to the crowd the context of his miracles. In that gospel passage, Jesus says he is the real source of eternal life and that obtaining this life is not based only on good works, but on faith. Cardinal Cantalamessa explained that we eat the bread of life referred to by Jesus in the sacrament of the Eucharist and in the word of God, especially in the gospels. Jesus, the cardinal added, also spoke about this in the gospel of Matthew, chapter 4, verse 4, where he notes that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Eating the bread of life, Cardinal Cantalamessa went on, invites us to live a life guided by the gospel values. He explained that Jesus became our bread of life by dying on the cross for our sins and by resurrecting from the dead. Pope Francis has nominated Father Aurelio Gazera, a member of the Order of the Discalced Camelites, to be coadjutor bishop of the Catholic Diocese of Bangasu in the Central African Republic. The bishop-elect is an Italian national, and before this nomination, he was the director of Caritas in the Diocese of Boua in the Central African Republic. He was born in 1964 and ordained a priest in 1989. He began missionary work in the Central African Republic in 1992. The Secretary General of the Tanzania Catholic Bishops' Conference, Father Charles Kitima, has told reporters in Dar es Salaam that the recent visit of Tanzanian President Samia Suluhu Hassan to the Vatican was a signal that the government is committed to the promotion and the protection of religious freedom, peace enhancement, and social cohesion. Mrs. Suluhu visited the Vatican on February 12th and held talks with Pope Francis and the Vatican Secretary of State, Cardinal Pietro Parolini. A statement released by the Holy Cypress Office said the talks were cordial. Father Kitima said freedom of religion in Tanzania 
has enabled various religions to carry out their spiritual activities without hindrance and to offer other services like in the case of the Catholic Church, health care and education. He stressed that the Catholic Church in Tanzania offers cheap and quality services to all without discrimination. Currently, the church offers services in almost every village across the country. Father Kitima said the church will continue to expand and construct the infrastructure for offering these services. He also noted that the church is engaged in peace building and will continue to preach social cohesion and national unity. The Catholic Diocese of Banjul in the Gambia announces with sadness the death of its retired Bishop Robert Patrick Elson, who passed away on Thursday at the age of 82 years. An Irish national and a member of the Spiritan Missionaries, Bishop Elson was born in 1942 and ordained a priest in 1969. He began his missionary work in the Gambia in 1970 and he served in various capacities including as a parish priest, administrator of the Cathedral of Banjul, and as vicar general of the Diocese of Banjul. He was appointed Bishop of Banjul by Pope Benedict XVI in 2006 to succeed Bishop Michael Kirali, who had retired. He is remembered for his humility, sense of responsibility, and active pastoral work. Police in Western Australia say they have charged a retired Catholic Bishop Christopher Alan Saunders with sex crimes after receiving a confidential internal report from the Vatican. Christopher Wells has the details. Bishop Christopher Saunders, the former ordinary of Broome in Western Australia, was arrested on Wednesday. He was released on bail on Thursday and ordered to reside at his home until his next hearing in June. The bishop is charged with two counts of rape, 14 counts of unlawful and indecent assault, and three counts of indecently dealing with a child as a person in authority. In a statement, Archbishop Timothy Costello, the president of the Australian Catholic Bishops' Conference, said the allegations were very serious and deeply distressing, especially for those making those allegations. It is right and proper, he continued, and indeed necessary, that all such allegations be thoroughly investigated. Accusations were first made against Bishop Emeritus Broome in 2020. An initial police investigation was closed without charge, but Pope Francis then ordered a canonical investigation, according to the provisions of Vos Estis Lux Mundi, his 2019 motu proprio on combating sexual abuse. The investigation was overseen by Archbishop Mark Coleridge of Brisbane, but was carried out by independent investigators and terminated in a 200-page report. After this report was handed over to Australian police, they opened a new investigation into Bishop Emeritus Saunders. It is as part of this investigation that he has now been charged. The bishop resigned from his post in 2020. I'm Christopher Wells. The United Nations High Commission for Refugees, the UNHCR, has expressed gratitude to the African Union for adopting a resolution to eradicate statelessness on the African continent and include millions of people who have no country to call home. You are tuned to the English Africa Service of Vatican Radio. 
African News Panorama. The UN Human Rights Office said in a new report on Friday that both sides in Sudan's civil war have committed abuses that may amount to war crimes, including indiscriminate attacks on civilian sites like hospitals, markets, and even camps for the displaced. Efforts have so far failed to end the clashes that erupted in mid-April between Sudan's regular armed forces and the paramilitary rapid support forces, the RSF. The latest report is based on interviews with over 300 victims and witnesses, as well as footage and satellite imagery. It says that sometimes those fleeing for their lives or displaced by the violence became victims of explosive weapons attacks. In one incident, dozens of displaced people were killed when their camp in Zalingay in Darfur was shelled by RSF in mid-September, the report said. In another incident, some 26 civilians, mostly women and children, were killed in August by shells reportedly fired by the Sudanese armed forces while sheltering under a bridge. In his statement to accompany the report, Volker Turk, the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, said some of these violations will amount to war crimes. He said the guns must be silenced and civilians must be protected. President Macky Sall of Senegal has said the 2nd of April will be the end of his mandate as president of the West African nation. Mr Sall's announcement late on Thursday could allay fears he was planning to extend his rule after he postponed the country's elections earlier this month. During an interview on national television, he also said that it was unlikely that the election of a new president would be completed before then. He added that he cannot issue a decree to hold the election before a national dialogue takes place. The dialogue, which will include civil society groups, political parties and candidates, is set to begin on Monday and will likely finish on Tuesday, he said. His announcement to stand down at the end of his mandate came after the country's constitutional council, the highest election authority, ruled last week that a 10-month postponement of the vote was unlawful. The election had initially been scheduled for the 25th of February. President Alassane Ouattara of Ivory Coast has pardoned 51 prisoners who had been jailed for committing violence and crimes during the country's post-election crisis almost 14 years ago. The West African nation was plunged into violence after incumbent president Laurent Gbagbo refused to hand over power to Mr. Ouattara after he was declared the winner of a disputed runoff poll. More than 3,000 people were killed and over 150 women sexually abused during the November 2010 to April 2011 post-election violence, according to the rights group Human Rights Watch. And marathon world record holder Kelvin Kiptum was remembered for his talent and humility at a funeral service on Friday in Western Kenya. The 24-year-old and his Rwandan coach were killed on the 11th of February when the runner lost control of the vehicle he was driving. You are tuned to the Africa service of Vatican Radio. This is Development and Economy and you are welcome to the program. My name is Kanyanta Godfrey Kampamba. In an era where technological advancements are making breakthroughs like never before, concerns about the risks of artificial intelligence are looming large. 
One of the most significant risks that some experts are talking about is the fact that machines could develop their own agenda and create a scenario where their priorities may differ from human values and ethics. Such a situation, they argue, could result in machines prioritizing their goals. And in other arguments, some experts are focusing on the population of the world and are worrying about the close to 200 million people globally that are unemployed. And while the benefits of artificial intelligence may be evident, there are those rising fears that are worth noting that artificial intelligence tools may put even more people out of employment. That means that artificial intelligence is expected to take over many jobs that are currently performed by humans. Yet it has to be noted that alongside artificial intelligence threats to the labor market, positive effects are also expected, and they include the fact that workers could be helped to automate more repetitive tasks in order to free up time for higher-value work. The only worry, again, is the fact that the gaping digital divide between wealthy and poorer nations may not help developing countries benefit from the productive benefits of artificial intelligence. So the big questions still stand. For instance, how will artificial intelligence really affect the world of work? Can it help to address any of the big problems we currently face, such as inequality, stagnant productivity, and inadequate fundamental rights? And how can businesses and workers prepare to avoid the pitfalls of artificial intelligence and make the most of the benefits it offers? Janine Beg is a senior economist in the research department of the International Labour Organization in Geneva. She is currently leading new research on the impact of artificial intelligence in the world of work. In this program, Janine Beg talks to Domenica tomaszewski Motma from the United Nations News and examines the latest developments regarding artificial intelligence. Most of the AI is going to be doing is it's going to be replacing certain tasks. So it's not really about replacing jobs. Unless your job consists only of those tasks that can be replaced by AI, then you have a threat of being let's say, automated away. Let's say you're a lawyer and you have 10 major tasks that you do in your day-to-day functions. And some of those tasks might be researching briefs, but some of those tasks are really about getting new clients, talking with your clients. Those functions, AI wouldn't be able to do, but the AI could help you with some of the legal research. The most likely scenario is that most jobs will be augmented by this technology, which means that some of the tasks that you do in your day-to-day jobs can be done by the AI, and then you would probably spend more time doing other things, or you would have new tasks that would come about. Recently on social media, we saw a famous photo of a building under construction with a banner saying, hey, chat GPT, finish this building. This points out that AI can't replace certain jobs. So which jobs do you think might be destroyed by AI and which new jobs will be created by AI? People who are in fields where you're using your hands, there's human contact, you're really engaging with people physically in a sense, you're going to be protected. AI can't finish a building. It might help in maybe making some of the designs behind a building. So it maybe could help the engineers or, or some of the people drafting the plans for the building. We've been doing a study at the ILO looking at which occupations would likely be most affected of the latest type of AI, which is the large language models, such as ChatGPT, for example. And what we find is that it's really clerical professions that are going to be most affected. Almost 80% of their tasks are likely to be affected by AI. Are there any differences on this level between developed countries and developing countries, which ones are set to suffer the most? 
Clerical support workers are an important group in high-income and middle-income countries. They're not as present in lower-income countries. If you look at countries between upper-middle-income, lower-middle-income, and then low-income, and it really goes proportionally downward. And that's just a reflection of the economic diversification of countries at different levels of economic development. But if you think, for example, the Philippines and India are the leading countries in the world with call center workers. And this is an area that has potential to be replaced by AI. Now, Again, this depends a little bit on how that call center worker is being used. So if it's a company that really wants to have human contact, then the AI can be used to augment. So, for example, in a Filipino call center, they use a version of ChatGPT to give prompts to new employees on how they should answer questions. And this helped them in their jobs, and they actually decreased turnover. But there's also the potential of just replacing the workers. And countries that have a real development strategy in business process outsourcing could be at risk. In terms of the effects on developing countries, the positive effects of AI helping boost productivity might not be available to those countries. We know that there's a little under 3 billion people who are offline, and most of them are in low-income countries. Do you think they will be able to have any access to the AI revolution? And that's really the biggest concern. Because of the digital divide and so many people and actually so many enterprises not having access to internet, having broadband connection that's too expensive, or even just having electricity outages all the time, those are things that really are going to constrain businesses and their workers from being able to use the AI, which means then that this productivity divide between high-income countries and low-income countries is likely to expand more. Let's talk now about how AI influences the way people work and what work is like. You recently took part in a panel discussion titled, What if your boss was AI? Is this something that might be happening in the near future? And what will the consequences be? This is something that's happening already to some professions. So people who are in the gig economy, who are basically controlled by an algorithm, that is a type of AI that's managing their day-to-day -day work. A people, someone who works at a warehouse, for example, who gets instructions from an automated system, what box to pick up and what to do, all that is being controlled by AI. AI is setting the pace. Of course, there's humans behind that. We shouldn't lose sight of that. But there are people already who are in a situation where their day-to-day -day is completely set by the technology, and they have little chance of actually speaking to a manager and saying, look, I twisted my ankle, I can't walk as fast, I have an issue here, that is certainly a concern for them. For sure. And in a world where we have billions of people who are not covered by any form of social protection, do you think the rise of AI is going to make work conditions even more precarious? Yeah, I mean, it's not just social protection. It's really about labor protection in general and the people's ability to have voice in the workplace. Do the workers have a say in the design of the technological system that's being put in place in the workplace? We know countries where you have strong collective bargaining, strong workplace negotiation, let's say like the Nordic countries and even Germany where you have work councils. When you have technology in general, not just AI, being integrated into the workplace, there's less fear from the workers because they have more of voice, more control into how that technology is being used to set their daily work. There's different types of job quality. On the one hand, you can have what we call extrinsic dimensions, so how much you're paid, what type of contract you have. Those things are very important. But then there's other issues, intrinsic dimensions, such as autonomy, the pace at which work is being set. And all those issues are really important to people. And so when they don't have a say that deteriorates their working conditions, if they don't have that collective negotiation, that's a real problem. Another field in which AI is increasingly being used in the labor market is recruiting. It's being used to screen candidates, and the proponents of this method are saying that this allows them to avoid certain biases. Others are saying, however, that AI has its own dangerous biases. What is your view on that? 
We have to remember that the AI is being designed by humans, and it's also being trained on what humans have produced. And so all of that means that there's potential biases in all of the training information. So we have seen that it has been biased in some of the recruiting, and it's an issue because there's an incentive for a lot of firms to be using AI in recruitment. Um, There certainly are benefits about it. But it's going to be hard to know to what extent some people aren't getting the same access because of their gender or race or ethnic group. Overall, would you say that for the main stakeholders here and indeed the main stakeholder groups of the International Labor Organization, right now is AI being viewed as more of a threat or are they excited about the opportunity that it represents for productivity, for automation of certain tasks and freeing up workers to do more higher added value tasks? I think it is that mix. There is that certain benefit that it can augment what we do at work and allow us to have more time to do more interesting things. But then there's concerns about who are the people who are going to be displaced. Are there labor protections in place for those people to train into other jobs? Do they have access to training? Will they get income support during that training? All those are really important questions. And are there enough jobs? Because already there's a lot of people in the world without sufficient employment. And so a lot of the productivity gains mean that there's fewer workers needed. International Labor Organization Senior Economist Janine Berg talking to United Nations News Domenica Tomasiewicz-Kumotima about the pros and cons of the artificial intelligence tools vis-à-vis our own daily lives. And that is all we have time for in this edition of Development and the Economy. Until next week, at the same time, my name is Kanyan Tagodufri Kampamba. Coming up next, a reflection on this Sunday's readings prepared and presented by Father Enobong Udaidiong. Last Sunday, Jesus was tempted by Satan to distract him from fulfilling the mission of the Father. But Jesus could not be persuaded to abandon his mission of saving humanity. This Sunday, the second Sunday of Lent, in the first reading, God tested Abraham to see if he will have faith in him. God had promised him a son. Abraham and Sarah waited for many years before the promised child, Isaac, came in their old age. They were grateful for the gift of this child, a proof that God is always faithful to his promises. Not too long after, God said to Abraham, Take your son, your only begotten son Isaac, whom you love, and offer him as a burnt offering. There is no one that will not be so surprised at such a request coming from the very God who knew how desperate Abraham and Sarah needed to have a child of their own. Of course, God does not tempt us, but when he tests us, it is a requirement for our exaltation. Some of us will say God was not fair to Abraham. Why would he test Abraham in such a way? The image of the African family comes immediately to my mind. The pains and stigma of childlessness are so unbearable. And so if they succeed in getting one child, they will do everything to protect such a child. How did Sarah take such a message? Could it be that she did not know what was going to happen to her son? The boy himself never knew he was the lamb for sacrifice. Maybe if he knew, he would have run away. 
But interestingly, the test was for the man who received the promise, Abraham. Was he going to be faithful? We have seen he was faithful. When the issue of faith in God is put before many of us Christians, we often say we are not Abraham. But we can learn from him that faithfulness pays. St. Paul in his letter to the Romans chapter 8 assures us of God's faithfulness and unconditional love for us even when we are not faithful. He will always be with us in our trials. When life's situation becomes very difficult for some of us, often we begin to question God's faithfulness. I have heard on many occasions people telling me, Father, this situation is too hard for me to bear. Some do ask, why will God allow this to befall us? As Christians, we are not promised a life without trials. Hence, trials are moments of our glorification. It is God's way of glorifying us. It happened to Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. He accepted the Father's will and went on to offer himself for our salvation. Abraham did same. He did not hesitate to do as God commanded him. When Isaac asked him about the lamb for the sacrifice, he responded saying, The Lord will provide. This confirms the fact that the Lord cannot allow us to pass through any trial for which he cannot save us. All that is expected of us is faith in God. Faith in God must always go with patience and complete surrender to God who is always faithful. The transfiguration account presented in Mark's Gospel chapter 9 tells us that God is faithful to his promise. Jesus' transfiguration in the midst of the two great figures of the Old Testament, Moses who represented the law, and Elijah the prophets, confirms the fact that Christ is the fulfillment of the Father's promise. These holy men did not see the fulfillment of the promise of the Messiah in the flesh, but they contributed to its fulfillment. Every one of us have a role to play in the fulfillment of God's plan in the world. We have something important to contribute wherever we find ourselves, beginning with our family, the parish community, and society at large. As we pray and work for the betterment of things in the face of trials, let us trust, believe, and surrender all to God, knowing that what God has promised will be fulfilled. Remember, God is faithful even when we are unfaithful. May the message of Christ in all its richness continue to find a home in our hearts. Through the same Christ, our Lord. Amen. Peace be with you. You have been listening to the English Africa service of Vatican Radio and I am Johnny Baptist Tomosime. In our next program at the same time tomorrow, you can hear our feature, The World Around Us. Praise be Jesus Christ. Laudetur Jesus Christus.